Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord on this last of our Reformation Sundays here in October. God is good, amen? Amen. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has raised us up. We walked in darkness after our Father, the Prince of the power of the air, but God has made us His children of light. This is what God does. And the psalmist knew this, and he sang of this truth in Psalm 146 when he said this. He said, Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth and he returns to the earth and the very day his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help whose hope is in the Lord his God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is therein which keepeth truth forever which executeth judgment for the oppressed which giveth food to the hungry the Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind and the Lord raiseth them that are bowed down, and the Lord loveth righteousness. The Lord preserveth the strangers, he relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise ye the Lord. Let us pray today as we enter into worship of our holy God. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again for calling us into your presence to worship you, Lord. We are so thankful today that when our hearts were dark and when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we had no strength to call on you, Lord, you came and you quickened us. You enlivened our hearts, Lord. You gave us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, we pray today as we come into your presence that our praise would be acceptable to you lord that as we hunger and thirst after righteousness that you would fill us lord that you would change us that we might be more like you in christ's name we pray and all the church said amen Amen. first two weeks of this month I preached on the Psalms and the Reformation and I had actually intended on making this a third installment of the same thing and so my text is from Psalm 146 we won't really spend a lot of time in the Psalms today we're going to spend more of our time today in the life of a great man the Bible says that we the followers of Christ are the epistles read and known of men. And normally I'm preaching through one of the texts of the scripture, but today we're going to more focus on how God's word and his spirit is seen through the life of a man, an epistle read and known of men. 
My text, once again, is Psalm 146, 1 through 8, and I'll read it for you. Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord, O my soul, while I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, and he returns to the earth, in the very day his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in their end, which keepeth truth forever, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. He raiseth them that are bowed down, and the Lord loveth righteousness. Let us pray. Lord, as we enter this time in our worship, we're listening to hear your voice. We want you to speak to us, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that as I preach, Lord, that my words would not be in my own, but that they would come from you to this congregation, that they would be words filled with life. I pray that you would change us by them and that we would be more like you. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon today is called, Open the Eyes of a Blind King. And the last verse I read from Psalm 146 was verse 8. And you might remember it says that the Lord, everybody say the Lord. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. You see, that's what God does. God doesn't just amend our sight. He doesn't give us repair surgery or put glasses on us. He gives us sight where we have no sight whatsoever. We are blind. Ephesians chapter 4.18 says this way, these words about those who don't know Christ. He said that they are without understanding, that their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Sometimes we get frustrated with people. Sometimes we even get angry when we're trying to say, don't you understand? Don't you see? Don't you understand that God is good? That His mercy endures forever? That His laws are true? Don't you see it? And they go, no. And we get frustrated. We think, what's wrong with the people at work? What's wrong with the people that we encounter? What's wrong with the, the world today? Well, what's wrong with them is that they're blind. That's what's wrong with them. And as clearly as you see things, they don't see them at all. It should help with you being frustrated with them. Amen? Now that's bad news for them. They can't see. But let me tell you the good news. God opens blinded eyes. Can we say amen? amen. He opens blinded eyes. That's what we're praying will happen when we meet people. We're not praying that we'll be articulate enough to argue our point to convince them. I used to... Um, I remember someone taught me this. A man convinced a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You can beat people in arguments. Some people are good at that. But that doesn't save people. You can checkmate people with your logic and, and make it impossible for them to back out without denying God. But in the end, you know what they're going to do, folks? They're going to deny God because they don't believe. I have a question for you today, and some of my sermon is focused, a lot of it maybe, is focused toward the young people of our church, the children of our church, but it's focused towards the old as well. My question today for you is, do you pray for God to open the blinded eyes of your neighbors? Do you pray for God to open the blinded eyes of your relatives? Do you pray for God to open the blinded eyes of our nation? Is that what you do, or do you just talk bad about them? Do you say, oh God, open their eyes that they might see what I see, rather than making fun of them for stumbling in the dark. They're stumbling in the dark because they're blind. 
Just like the man in John chapter 9, he was blind from birth. This is a great picture of what we are. The Bible says we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Were we not? We were conceived in sin and shaped in iniquity. We were born sinners. Every one of us. And we're born without this knowledge unless God gives us eyes to see. The imperative of the scriptures, he that hath an ear, let him hear. The imperatives, he with eyes to see, let him see. These things are for real. You really can't see these things unless God gives you eyes to see them. So if you don't pray for your relatives, for your neighbors, for your leaders, why not? Ask yourself, why don't you do that? And it might be believed because you think, that it really won't make much difference at all. Maybe you think your prayers don't amount to anything. I mean, what could Rebecca do to open the eyes of the president or of the governor or of uh, my brother? He's just, you know, this crazy brother or that's just our wacky text crazy president or it's just whatever. What can I do? Folks, that's exactly what the devil wants you to be thinking. That what you can do is nothing. It's not true. The devil wants you to think that because he's terrified of what would happen if you really did pray that and you meant it. You know God answers our prayers? Now, God is sovereign. He saves people. But I'm telling you right now, the way it works is people preach to those people and people pray for those people and then God saves those people. That's how it works. God's Word plainly states this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The devil wants you to think your prayer doesn't matter, Elizabeth. And God says, yes it does. In fact, it avails much. Let me read this to you from James chapter 5, starting in verse 16. James is winding up his book. He was the wise man of Jerusalem, the pastor and he was calling on the people of Jerusalem for this. He said, we should confess our faults one to another and pray for one another. Everybody say, pray for one another. Pray. That you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man. It does what? Oh no, we're Calvinists. I mean, God's already foreordained everything and it's all come to pass. But does God's word says it avails much. Then guess what it does? It avails much. Elias was a man of like passion as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. I mean, you might think a guy's crazy, Paul. He's praying, Lord, I pray that it will not rain. I mean, that, I mean, rain is good. He says no. And you know what God did, Paul? That it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. Could you imagine that? He prayed that it would not rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. I, 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 this is amazing. But he prayed again. Andy, guess what happened? It rained. It's a great story. He says, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Do you know what was so exciting about that for him? It's because he had prayed. Imagine being the one to pray that it would not rain. And then imagine being the one who prayed that it would rain. And when it rains, you hear the sound of the abundance of rain. You see, that's how it works. God answers the prayers of his people. He prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you err from the truth, and one convert him. Let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Who are you praying for? Do you know someone who's lost, who's blind, who's stumbling in the darkness? And who are you praying for? Are you praying for them? My hope for us today is that we would faithfully and fervently begin to pray for God to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. That God would give them new eyes to see. And that it would be like Elias when the rain came. He was excited. Why? Because he prayed that it would rain. And it rained. I pray that God, you would pray that God would open the eyes of your dad. That he would open the eyes of your mom. That he would open the eyes of your unsaved relatives. Of the, the leaders of our nation. And when we get the news that they have come to see the light, we can go... Woo! I prayed for that. It's a great feeling. I've watched it come to pass. I've prayed for things and watched them come to pass. And it's pretty exciting. Today I'm going to talk to you about a man who did that, who prayed. He prayed, he prayed crazy prayers. And he watched them come to pass. And he even prayed for some things that he never saw come to pass, but they did still yet. 
You know, the enemy can kill your body. God lets him. It's your time to go. But do you know what? Your prayers are still out there. William Tyndale, the amazing English reformer and famed Bible translator, he prayed these kinds of prayers literally until his dying day. His last words, though. Do you guys know his last words? I've read so much about him and learned so much about him, I'm, it's hard for me to not get choked up. His last words that he cried out in passion as he was being martyred moments before the executioner silenced him were such a prayer. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Now, you know, this isn't Scripture or anything, but I, I'd like to dissect it just a little bit. He cries out, Lord, right? He could have prayed an arbitrary prayer. He could, Lord, save me. Lord, make this not hurt so bad. Lord, uh, bring about something good in the world. It could have been very, very, very general. But Jonathan, what does he do? He prays something very specific. This is a very particular prayer. Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. The King of England wasn't really the reason that Tyndale was dying. It was because of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who had decreed his death sentence because of the Catholic Church's anger at him. Tyndale would not live to see his prayer answered, but they would be answered in a dramatic and incredible way. If you haven't ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it may not be on the New York Times bestselling list, but as you read the stories of those who died, you will come to the 184th person who died and who would not recant his faith. And number 184 in the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs is a man by the name of William Tyndale, after whom I named my little son Liam, Liam Tyndale. You may hear me calling him that. I love this man. I want... I want to go where he was. I want to do like he did. I want to be inspired by this man. You know, the Apostle Paul, he, he did not have fear to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And this man, William Tyndale, although it's not recorded anywhere that he said this, I would say it today. We should follow him as he followed Christ. He was born around 1494. Records weren't really great. Some historians even have it back at 1490. I think 1494 is a better date in a place called Gloucestershire. And you'd have to say it like that because it was, well, maybe more English, but it's in Gloucestershire in southern, southwestern England. This man who grew up to be known by historians as the architect of the English language. I mean, can you think of a person with a more cool name? He was the architect of the English language. He was the powerhouse of the English Reformation. Not a lot is known of his early life other than that he gave himself to study. He was just a 12-year-old boy when they took him to the town of Oxford in England and he was still a boy and they enrolled him in Magdalen College. And Andrea and I, when we were there at Oxford, we were lost and we didn't know where we were and we ended up in this court and I remember reading on the wall, Magdalen College. And I've been thinking, I wonder what that is. I didn't, I didn't know that what I was looking at was the school where 12-year-old William Tyndale grew up and began studying. It is said that this is the place that he grew up where he worked hard and he began to work even at a young age toward his Bachelor of Arts degree. I didn't know there was a such thing as a Bachelor of Arts degree, but apparently there was. And in 1512, after working six hard years doing this, He's 18 years old and he gets his Bachelor of Arts degree. He had a proclivity for language. In fact, he learned eight languages and he spoke them. Now, he didn't learn them by the time he was 18, but he started his learning and study of French and German and all these different languages, eight languages. They said that when he spoke these languages, it was as if they were his native tongue. He was gifted, obviously. Working with discipline and diligence. Everybody say discipline and diligence. 
He worked hard at his studies until he earned his Master of Arts degree three years later at the age of 21. At this time, he was not only a hardworking academic, but all who knew him held him to be a man of virtuous disposition, and he led what they described as a very holy life, an unblemished life. Once he achieved his master, he was allowed to begin studying theology, and this is an amazing thing that tells us about his time. But he had received his master's, Jeff, but he was still not allowed to actually view the Bible itself yet. This is the way it was. Not only could the common man not have the Bible, not only were church services done in a language they didn't know. They would come forward and they would do church services in Latin and, and Marie. The people didn't even know how to speak it. Could you imagine this? Coming to church and just going, I hope Pastor Mark's saying it right. <laughs> I don't know any Latin to pretend, but you know, that's what they would do. And so William Tyndale had not even, he's got his master's degree, Jacob, and he doesn't even have access to the Bible. And the reason why he learned all this is so he could know the Word of God. And this keeping it from him was driving him mad. He records this complaint. He wrote this. He said, They have ordained that no man shall look upon the Scripture until he be nostled in all the heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles which he is clean shut out of understanding the scripture. He's already taught a bunch of foolishness before he ever gets in the Bible and by the time he gets to the Bible he has no idea what he's talking about because his mind is so bent. His frustration was channeled though into learning Greek. He said, you know, I know how to solve this problem. I'll learn Greek. And so he did. He began studying. And you know, God in His providence had a way of bringing things together, Jeff. Do you know who was just a few miles away to the east? There was a place called Cambridge, and there was a man who had lived and taught there, most famous Greek scholar in all of the world at that time, and still even today, named Erasmus. He lived there. He was right down the road. Could you imagine this, Tim? Just being right down the road from the world's most premier Greek scholar on earth while you're frothing at the mouth to learn it and wanting to know it so you can read God's word and Erasmus is got it and he's like whoa you know I'm going to go over there and so he's studying I'm, I'm going to be good at my studies I'm going to work hard the only way to get done what he needed to do to unlock these closed doors to him was to work everybody say work hard. to work hard he worked hard and it was constant there's there's, you know, nobody would want to read about this time in his life. It's not that exciting. Everyone wants to read about what happens after, but nobody wants to read about what happened in those long years when he put in the study of, the, of how to you know, conjugate his verbs and how to do this and how to do that. I don't have this education myself. I can't even really describe it. I took a few years of French. I learned a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I cannot imagine the work that it takes. Folks, working for God is not just... You know, going on a mission trip and building a block wall. Working for God is what you do when no one is looking. Working for God is opening up books. Working for God is saying, I'm going to dedicate my mind. I'm going to worship God with my heart, my soul, and my mind. All of us want to love God with our heart, and we love to sing. And all of us, you know, say, oh, we're going to do it with all of our might. We're willing to go out and do great exploits. But very few people are willing to give their mind to God. In fact, that's what the devil wants. He wants the minds of your children. He wants them goofy and silly and playing and, and, and never growing up and doing hard work. That's what he wants. He wants them distracted and he wants them, you know, because if he can just keep them spinning like a hamster in a wheel, they can go nowhere but feel like they're doing something. Before you know it, they're harmless to him. The only way to get it done what needed to be done was hard work and he was willing to do it no one forced him he did it for the love of God and a sense of purpose that was a calling children work and work hard do hard work in books this was what made the kingdom come and God's will done on earth as it is in heaven in the day of William Tyndale had he not done that work he would never be remembered today had he not done that work, for years maybe, the people of England would be still starving for the Word of God that was not available to them. In fact, the work of the whole Reformation, Andy, is what? It's a work. It's about work. It's about Calvin. It's about Luther. What's Luther doing? Translating the Bible. 
What's Calvin doing? Translating the Bible. What's Tyndale doing? Translating the Bible. You can't translate the Bible into a language you don't know. He had to know his own language and he had to know it well. He had to know the languages of Scripture. These great heroes, Calvin. I, I was so thankful on my birthday I got this thing of Calvin. I, I almost put it up here on the piano. And I thought, oh no, the people would think that we've gone into idolatry here. Someone would come and chop it down, you know. We don't worship Calvin, okay? But I'm glad I got a little statue of Calvin to remind me that hard work matters. The work you do in the study, the work... The work I do, I do work for you guys all the time. I sit in my office and I study and I look and I try to understand and I look at the original languages. You benefit from this every week. You may not know it, but the, most of what comes to you from the Word of God through me comes through a great deal of labor and study and work and excellence. I write it down. How many of you know that if you wanted to read the sermons that I preach, all you'd have to do, they're right here, almost word for word, written for you. I am praying that God gives me a young man or a woman because it's a rare woman or man that ever does this. It's rare. Maybe in all the church, maybe, maybe they're not even born yet. Maybe they're going to be born. But man, I hope there is. I hope there is a, a, a young man or a young woman or a child here that says, you know what, I'm listening to this sermon and I'm, I'm hearing this work, this, this study, this, hey, I could give God my mind. Many of us want to say, oh, I want to give Him my body and, and I'll go to a foreign land. They say, oh, I'm going to give him my voice and I'll sing to him. But few be that give them their mind. And, but it's those who give God their mind and hard work and study and excellence that you will see that affect the world for generations to come. I was telling uh, Stephen, it is my hope that we make a publishing company. And he was saying, you know, books are the beginning of movements. Books are the beginning of changes of the world. They endure they can, they can choke out your voice like they ended up doing to Tyndale and they can stop it. But the words you've written down, they live on beyond your lives. And what God's done in our life, folks, needs to be told. I'm praying that someone here in this church will be willing to learn Greek and Hebrew, willing to be able to dedicate themselves to long hours of study. We have hard work to do right here in Ohio. Here in the United States, there are Christians that are writing books, history books, saying the United States is post-Christian. They're saying that we are entering into a pagan. I do not believe it. I will not accept it. And I will not relinquish to the devil what I have not fought for. And I pray that we would raise up a standard, an army of God. We don't need to save our country you know, in a hundred years from being apocalyptic in the sense that we just failed and the judgments of God came upon us. I pray that a reformation begins here. And they say, you know, back in 2018, there was a young lady, there was a young man who began to love the Word of God. And she sat in there, she was just a little girl, or she was just a little boy, or she was a young man. Well, she was not a little boy, right? Definitely not. <laughs> You see, the church of our day is plagued with ignorance. You can hardly go to a, a church where absolute foolishness is not being taught. And when you ask Christians questions, they have no idea. You know, most people have no idea even who William Tyndale was. I went to England and was trying to talk to people there in England where he's from, right around the... Where, and I'm like, and they're like, Who? I watched a documentary online. They went to the town where he was born. They're like, do you know who William Tyndale is? And they're like, they're like is, he, is he on the council? You know. Has God given you a good mind, Peter? Has he given you a good mind? I bet he has. I've seen it working. Are you willing to work hard? Grace, Millie? Yeah. Nathan? Oh, Liam's raising his hand. Woo! Could you imagine if the boy Liam Tyndale grew, grew up to be like his namesake? Talk about making a dad proud. By God's grace, an unparalleled scholar named Erasmus, as I said, had been working nearby in Cambridge teaching Greek, paving the way for the study of the Scriptures. 
which Tyndale longed for. So you know what he did? He said, I'm going to Cambridge. By the time he got there, Erasmus was dead, but his legacy lived on and his students there. And he began to study. And he became so good at Greek that he began teaching at Cambridge himself. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study. Everybody say study. study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman. You know, when we think of a workman, we don't think of a, a guy with a pencil, do we? We think of a guy with a saw, with a hammer. We think of a lot of things, but we don't think of a man with a pen. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. These words were offered to Timothy by the Apostle Paul, and I call you today to hear them for yourself. Study. Everybody say study. Do you want to be approved of God? Then become a diligent workman. This is what William Tell gave us. He gave his life for this, and it's why we're still talking about it hundreds and hundreds of years later. His work changed the world in his time, and it's affected our time too. This is how you can change your world and the world that comes after you. Imagine it, what you can do now could change the world ahead of you. Fox's Book of Martyrs says it this way of Tyndale. Thus he and the University of Oxford increasing more and more in learning, proceeding in degrees of schools, spying his time, removed from thence to the University of Cambridge, where after all he had likewise made his abode at a certain place, being now further ripened in his knowledge of God's Word. He began to crack open the Bible, and he began to read it, and the more he read it, Luke, he started to get crazy in his head. He started to think, oh my, the Word of God says this, and this, and we've been hearing this from the pulpit? The Word of God says nothing about buying your way into heaven. The Word of God says nothing about earning your way to God. The Word of God says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. I can only imagine what it was like when he opened that up and he read it for the first time. I bet he began to shake all over, and he was kind of like Josiah, where Josiah said, oh no, woe is me. Woe is all of us because God's judgment is coming. We're not teaching this. People don't know this. No one is living this. And he said in his heart that everyone that he could talk to was going to hear what God's word said. Tyndale became the teacher at Cambridge for a while. But you know, practical life has a way of forcing us to do things he probably would have liked to stay at Cambridge and liked to have been a teacher there, but he needed to make a little bit of money, so he took a job. And honestly, Andy, when I begin to read about the job that he took, I almost kind of felt sorry for him. Like, if he had been my friend at the time, and he was a fellow preacher, I would have been like, really? But he wasn't. He actually was a scholar. I always thought of William Tyndale as a preacher, but he really wasn't. He had to find a way, as a, a practical way to support himself, and because he was educated in the Scriptures, he had ecclesiastical license to do certain things. So he took an odd job. What may seem odd to you? A wealthy man, a very influential man, who was actually a knight named Sir John Walsh, had a lovely home and grounds called the Little Sodbury Manor. Now there was really nothing little about it. It was 17,500 square feet. Kind of a big little manor, right? Little Sodbury Manor. Little tiny thing. And uh, within the walls of the estate was there was a small church made. It's the only church in the whole world with the same name because it's named after the uh, patron saint of weavers, St. Adeline. Probably the family was a merchant in, you know, material of some kind. And so the patron saint of weavers, uh, St. Adeline, whoever she was, they named this little chapel. And they needed someone to be the priest in their chapel just for their family. They were so wealthy that they could have their own little church. Talk about living close to your church, right? You're wealthy enough to build a church in your backyard. They were the first home churchers, maybe. I don't know. And so they were in this church in the backyard. And he had these sons. And, he, and so Sir John said, can you come to my house and homeschool my boys uh, at home and, and also be our home our live-in priest, preacher, guy. So here this great man of God, this great scholar, this man with all this zeal takes a job and he's going to this man's house and he's teaching his two young sons. We don't, 
you know, they're not known in history about anything great about they did, but there he was. He was teaching these two little boys, and he was conducting church service at St. Adeline's in their backyard. In this kind of an odd situation. But God has a way of taking something like that and really uh, doing something with it because God was going to have his holy will. This man became the sheriff of his area. He wasn't the sheriff of Nottingham. He was the sheriff of Gloucestershire. And he became to be important. And as a knight, he was a powerful man. You can imagine him in his armor and riding on his war horse. He becomes a mighty influential man. He ends up becoming the champion of Henry VIII. And at his coronation, the man riding the battle horse steed with his armor on at the coronation of Henry VIII is going to be this man who was not a man of that great stature yet, but he was that kind of man. So he knew people and he was always having people over to his home and, and uh, inviting them to eat with him. And William Tyndale happened to be there and apparently he was unable to keep his mouth shut. And as he sat there, these bishops and abbots and important people would come and they would talk as if they knew about what the Bible said. And he would sit there and he would think, what idiots. If you read some of his writings, he said, these people, I don't believe they can even read Latin, much less Greek and Hebrew. I don't think they've ever even seen the Bible before. He goes, their ignorances are so compounded. No wonder the people of God in the community have no idea what God's word said and they have no idea how to obey it. And he got, and so he began to start little fights with these guys, and he began to win, and they began to be mad. Winning debates is not always healthy. They'll, they'll, they'll get you. Now there, yet in his little room, after he would argue at the table with visitors, and and he was living out his life there, he began to translate the Bible into the English language. It would end up being the first translation of the New Testament in English. And he did this work. He's in this little room. The room still exists. You can go there. In fact, you can rent out the house and stay in it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is. For only 6,000 pounds a night. You can do it for or 6,000 pounds or $6,000 a night. It's really great. No one heralded the work that was going on in between his teaching lessons by of these little boys are preaching on Lord's Day in the little chapel, but yet God would use the humble station as an incubator for the Great Reformation in England. Sir John, his benefactor employer, as I said, was the sheriff, and uh, he had people over. Important and learned men would come to dine with them at the table of the Walsh family. Fox recorded one event that stands out in history that happened that ended up getting him in a whole lot of trouble. He was there at the table, and the man began to argue how great the Pope was. And, and after having read the Bible, Paul, uh, he wasn't real impressed with the Pope. I mean, imagine reading the Bible for the first time and knowing what the Pope was doing and the rules. You would just be disgusted, would you not? It says it this way in Fox's Book of Martyrs. It said, Master Tyndale happened to be in the company of a certain divine, a certain preacher man, recounted as a learned man, and in communing and disputing with him, he drove him to the issue that said that the great doctor burst out into these blasphemous words. So he starts arguing with the man who's talking about how great the Pope is. And he's going, no, 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 the word of God is great. And he's saying, no, the Pope is great. And they're having an argument about it. And so this man says, it would be better to be without God's word than it would be, with, be without the Pope. What do you think this did to William Tyndale? He was like... Like, you know, it pushed him over the edge. If he was an even-tempered man, I mean, if I heard someone in a church or someone in my presence go, it would be to be better without the Bible than without the Presbyterian church. It would be hard enough to knock them over the head immediately, right? Master Tyndale, hearing this, full of godly zeal, this is a King James, you know, uh, rendition of really ticked off and wanting to punch him in the face, uh, he replied... I'm sure he replied. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. I mean, I can just imagine this, you know. And further added, if God spared his life, that ere many years he would cause that the boy that drives the plow, there was a, you know, obviously fields all, all nearby where he was. And he said, the boy that's driving that plow out there, he's going to know more about Scripture than this man does. This was the purpose of his life. And after this, the grudge of these priests who he argued with, it got worse. And so the zeal 
that drove him to do this, to translate the Bible, got him in trouble here as it came out of his mouth. And by God's grace, though, he worked and studied and he worked and he worked and he studied and he worked while he prepared himself, all the while praying for God to change the hearts of the leaders of his nation. Because of this, he had to leave uh, his job, really. People were out after him. They were wanting to take him to court. And he had to go a couple times, but he realized where this was going. People were being burned at the stake at this time for allowing people to read the Bible. And he knew his day was going to come. So he went and hid out in London where he began to work on his translation of the New Testament. Ultimately, he fled England and he went to Wittenberg. And because he could speak German, he talked with Martin Luther. And Martin Luther and him commiserated about... Uh, what needed to be done in the world. And Martin Luther, it is said, actually helped him as he translated the New Testament and finished it. And by the time he went into hiding in Belgium near Antwerp, between Antwerp and Brussels, he, it is said that thousands of these New Testaments that he translated were filling and flooding England and changing the whole nation. Believe it or not, of all the languages he knew, he didn't know Hebrew. And he said, in order to translate the Old Testament, what am I going to have to do, guys? I'm going to have to learn it. And so he dedicated himself to it. They said it's an amazing thing that when he left England, he didn't know Hebrew at all. And within a few years, he studied so hard. Probably his work learning all these other languages made Hebrew easier for him. And they said that his translation of Hebrew of the Old Testament stands unaltered today. It 85%. That's a pretty incredible scholarship, folks. Ten years he spent hiding, translating, and he did it. He translated much of the Old Testament directly from the Hebrew. His scholarship made him a great champion, a true Christian knight for the cause of Christ. Amen? But this didn't happen, though, in his lifetime. There was a man whose name was Henry Phillips who he thought was his friend who came to visit him and spent some time with him. And he really liked him and he shared his life with him. But he was kind of a Judas. And he betrayed him. And the people of the time said he was worse than Judas because Judas at least wept bitterly and even took his own life. But this man, after Tyndale died, celebrated and kept the money. This guy was a bad guy. They took him, they tricked him, and they, they got him, and they put him in a castle. And I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but it's Vilvord, V-I-L-V-O-O-R-D-E, Vilvord Castle. And for 500 days, they locked him in these horrible, horrible circumstances and conditions in the castle. But you know what he did? He wrote, he debated, he sent letters all over arguing and debating and you know what he did honey he started telling the keeper and the keeper's family and the guards about jesus and about his love for them and guess what began to happen andy good things he was held as i said for 500 days but by royal decree of charles v and at the behest of the catholic church tyndale was tried and sentenced on the same day and I mentioned this to you before, but I'll say it again. I mentioned this to Nathaniel, not to all of you. It was on October the 6th, which is Nathaniel's birthday, 1536. Short trial, obviously. Tried, convicted, and executed all on the same day. It makes me say, Nathaniel, don't you want to be a torchbearer of the man whose life was taken on the day that you were born? Study, work, work, study, be a reformer, carry Tyndale's torch. Robinette, children, I've been talking to some of you about study and about work and about praying effectual prayers. It's my prayer today that you hear this. In the final moments here on earth, William Tyndale would not relent. He had spent his time in prison writing tirelessly to those who would listen, calling on them to return to God's word and worship. And they tied him to the stake. Before his executioner could stop him, he cried out to all that could hear the prayer to God that God would answer. A prayer that echoed across Europe and I hope here today. 
Fox wrote, crying thus at the stake with fervent zeal. In a loud voice, he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And the executioner stopped him before he lit the pyre. And he was strangled to death. When I read it, it just, I was like, I don't even want to say that. But it's true, we're frail. You know that? We're weak and we're frail. And someone could stop us. Pretty simple. But the work that he did couldn't be stopped. It came out like a flood. It went everywhere. The books that he wrote, the translation work that he did, the long hours that he spent could not be taken away. We are benefiting from it today. His friend and co-laborer, Miles Coverdale, made sure Tyndale's work would not die with him. He gathered up his papers and his books. It is because of Tyndale's translation that make up most of the Bible he published. Miles Coverdale published a Bible called The Great Bible, and it was really from the work of William Tyndale. In this book were not only the words of God translated from Tyndale from Greek and Hebrew, but they were an answer to his prayer. You know what God did? Three years after his death, God opened the eyes of Henry VIII, who sought Tyndale's death particularly because Tyndale opposed his divorce from Catherine of Aragon and his new wife he wanted to marry, Anne Boleyn. Tyndale said, this is ungodly. Even if you're the king, you can't do this. Henry would later decree, though, that the Great Bible was put in every church in England. Isn't that amazing? He prayed, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England, and the King of England is the one who made the decree, Stephen, and every church in England was given a Bible filled with William Tyndale's words. You know, Henry VIII didn't know they were William Tyndale's. Or do you think he would allow that to be? No, he didn't. God would open his eyes like he does so many others. And his Tyndale's dying prayer came true. Such was the wonderful power of his doctrine and sincerity of life that during his time of imprisonment, which endured for a year, Fox wrote, he converted his keeper, his keeper's daughter, and many others in their household. They said that if he were not a Christian man, then they did not know one. And they refused to believe he was a heretic worthy of death. Many of the great modern English versions stand in the King James tradition and thus also draw inspiration from William Tyndale, including the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the English Standard, the ESV, which Andy reads from often in our pulpit. The enormous debt owed by this English-speaking world to William Tyndale is incalculable. His crafting of our English language introduced new words into our vocabulary that are spoken every day in countries around the world. If you ever hear Shakespeare, know you're hearing William Tyndale. Ultimately, his work in the translating of the Bible from its original languages into the tongue of his homeland helped launch the English Reformation. The calling of God upon his heart became a burning passion to see commoners read God's unadulterated word. Unfortunately, most people have never even heard of his name. They have no idea who he is. We want Tyndale's to be tenacious. We want the Tyndale's of our church to be tenacious to stand up and to do what needs to be done. I'll close with this couple verses. David wrote in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, in Psalm 19, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Tyndale's life was a life not unlike Psalm 119. It's what I was going to preach about today, and I won't. I'm, I'm closing. But I discovered Psalm 119, and as I read it, I thought, you know, I could never preach on this. I, I would have to preach on this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Psalm 119 is David's 
magnum opus. It is a prayer of God about God's Word. And for 176 verses, you know what he sings about, Christina? About God's Word, about His law, about His statutes, about the beauty of His Word, about the greatness of His Word, over and over. I counted, it took me a long time, Becky. I counted every reference to the Word of God itself in Psalm 119. You know how many there are? 178 references in one psalm. What a song. And I pray that as Tyndale's life was a song such as this, that our life would be a song, it would be a work, it would be a labor that we offer to God as a sacrifice. Amen? I'm praying that God calls some people. I know this is different than we normally do. I know I'm normally in the Scriptures in a, in a different way. But hear the words from the psalm. Hear the words of this man's life. Lord, open the eyes of the king and let they inspire you to pray specific prayers and to work the excellent work of scholarship so that our future generations may be blessed. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, there are so many young people here. So much potential for greatness. So many minds that could be given to your word, to your law, to the languages of the scripture, to Hebrew and to Greek. Lord, it is my prayer. Lord, give us scholars. Give us young men and women of God who love you and who burn with the zeal of study and scholarship and work who are not lazy and who do not give their mind over to foolishness and to waste and to entertainment but turn their hearts to you O lord O lord please lord may we lead our children in these things in christ's name we pray and all the church said amen Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.